Welcome, everybody. Spiritual Psychotherapy, episode four of season two. Um, I am very excited about this one. I think, uh, you know, let me take out the Zohar from now. Uh, some interesting stuff I was just reading in my house. And it's really, it's such a special experience when you just take the time late in the day um, and you're you're able to just sit with God. You know, I'm, I'm very lucky that, that this month I have uh, a pretty chill rotation. So I spent some of my day meditating, just stopping. I drank a little too much Turkish coffee this morning. I said, let me relax a little bit. And uh, that's what we can do right now and tonight. And uh, I, I want to start with the words of Kabir, one of these uh, Arabian poets. He says, oh, Sadhu, I think his student was named Sadhu. He says, the simple union is the best. Since the day when I met with my Lord God, there has been no end to our sport of love. I shut not my eyes, I close not my ears, I do not mortify my body, I see with eyes open and smile and behold his beauty everywhere. I utter his name and whatever I see, it reminds me of him. Whatever I do, it becomes his worship. The rising and the setting are one to me. All contradictions are solved. Wherever I go, I move round him. All I achieve is his service. When I lie down, I lie prostrate at his feet. He is the only adorable one to me. I have none other. My tongue has left off impure words. It sings his glory day and night. Whether I rise or sit down, I can never forget him, for the rhythm of his music beats in my ears. And another quote from him, he says, My heart is frenzied. And I disclose in my soul what is hidden. I am immersed in that one great bliss which transcends all pleasure and pain. So, you know, this is such an unbelievable experience. Just to, to have those words settle on you. I don't know if it hits you the same way it hits me, but I, I feel his words in a way that's, you know, you can kind of tell when somebody is really experiencing something a little bit mystical and um, and I remember, I remember when I was, you know, first getting really into Judaism, you know, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, and you have some of those Amidot where it's like you, you pray to Hashem and you really feel that love and that connection. And, um, you know, personally speaking, as you grow older a little bit, you start to intellectualize things and the intellect sometimes puts up a wall between our heart and God. And, uh, it's very easy to intellectualize. It's a classic defense mechanism. It's a classic way of it's protecting us, right? It's protecting the heart from having to feel what Ramdas would call the horrible beauty of the world, right? There's just, there's a horrible beauty to it. I mean, there's no other way of describing it. You know, uh, for every birth, there's death. For every new beginning, there's something that's ending. And that's a very, very poignant and tender thing for all of us to experience every day but the more we train ourselves to to stay open instead of running away instead of numbing this with all the different ways that we like to numb things if we can just embrace the the process of life as it comes towards us we really we can feel more connected but of course that's going to mean also we're going to feel all the pain you know they talk about the master meditators a lot of these guys, they, they measured the level of pain that they experience, and they actually feel more pain than we do. 
immediately, but the the duration of that pain is less. So it's interesting. They feel it fully all of a sudden, and then it dissipates much more much more quickly than it would for somebody who's not some kind of master meditator. I just thought that was really interesting. And yeah, the, I, I go to the banyas. I go to the Russian bathhouse. I was there last night. You know, you go to the freezing cold water and you just, you, you notice yourself closing off to it. But the more I go, the more I, I feel like I'm training myself to to just fully feel it. And it, it really is is an incredible, it's like a spiritual experience. I stay in about seven minutes first thing when I get there. I do before the hot mm-hmm. because you get the maximum dopamine rush. It's the whole Huberman thing, of course. But yeah, we it's a very interesting concept. I really, my dream is to open up a, a practice with um, a banya in it, a psychiatric practice. I might have to have a cardiologist, you know, clear every patient cardiologically before going into the hot and the cold. But I think it's a it's a pretty cool thing. So if anybody wants to invest, <laughs> my uh, son just yeah. asked me uh, to get a uh, an ice. What do you call the, it? The cold plunge, yeah, cold yeah, ice bath, yeah. It's hadid. Everyone's loving it these days. People are doing it. Everyone's doing it. That's what I hear. They're getting it for their homes and deals. people. I yeah, I've heard some people are doing that. Yeah, Mars Kishk has one like above ground in his deal house. It's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, that's what he showed me a picture of an above yeah. ground one. It's an amazing. It's good. I think it's worth investing in, but. Uh, yeah, I don't know how much it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right, so here's some quotes, um, some miscellaneous things from you know Eastern stuff that I was reading before we do some Zohar. Um, Uncle Richie asked what year that was written. I really wish I knew. Uh, if you want to look it up for me, what year was Kabir? I think he was like medieval times, um, but you would have to correct me on that. But it's a good question. Um, so this is uh, Alan Watts. I was reading part of his book, The Way of Zen. He talks about feeling thoroughly at home in the void. What makes Zen so unique is they, they have a quote as follows. Above, not a tile to cover the head. Below, not an inch of ground for the foot. There's nothing to stand on. This is the, the Zen experience. It's the almost the, the firm ground of emptiness that anytime you find yourself wanting to cling to something, whether that be the idea of God or clinging to your future or to your children's future or to something in the past or to anything at all, that's not, that's not really Zen. But on the other hand, it is because whatever is happening is just part of the flow of the Tao. And you can notice that. But at the same time, if you really want want to get to what the Zen experience is, it's just total nowhere to cling. And the the less you try to cling, the more you open yourself to whatever is currently flowing. And you put yourself in that vulnerable position, but that is reality as it is. And that's the the void, as they say. Um, And they say that the Tao's principle is spontaneity. So what what is the natural way of being once a person is kind of in this experience of of the Tao or of Zen, where they're not constantly either clinging to the past or having some kind of aversion towards something in the future? Once you're really so fully present in the now, surfing this wave, it's spontaneity. So that's what we talked about last week. Somebody asked the Zen master, 
What's the fundamental principle of Buddhism? Without missing a beat, he says, dumpling. That was the answer that he gave. Because it was just what naturally came. People might think this is like madness. But, you know, I mean, and I personally speaking, I've seen in the psych ward, you know, or in the psychiatric emergency room, you see people that look like they're really tripping. They might be on drugs, but usually they're just pretty psychotic. And they are living life. They're just going about what's going on. Um, let's see, Uncle Richie said, yeah, okay, no problem. We'll talk about it in a minute about Kabir. Um, but yeah, like this idea of flowing with and and being with what is uh, in such a way that's not contrived and not attempting to please anybody else they're just like you see guys you know playing air basketball to them by themselves in the middle of the psychiatric emergency room and it's something unbelievable to witness because we, I question, I pray, they might have to lock me up soon, because I question who's really the, the crazy one here. These guys are just flowing. And then here I am, I'm trying to impress this attending, standing all, you know, oh, I'm going to ask the right questions, and I'm, i am got to check off all my boxes. And it makes you realize some pretty profound things about life. And, about, and I think the, the Gemara says the people who still prophesize are dogs, babies who are pre-verbal and crazy people and and i every time i think of that i say you know I, I see it sometimes i've seen uh and and i've i've done my own research what's the difference between a mystical experience and a psychotic experience and the the bottom line that it really boiled down to in this paper that i read was ego strength that the, the stronger your ego is ironically the more easily it'll be able to let itself go so the more you know what you are in reality, what your ego thinks you are, the more easily you'll be able to just let go into that mystical experience. And whereas the mystic will say all is meaning and everything is one, everything is connected, the psychotic person will be paranoid and they'll say everything is meaningful, including every single detail that I have to somehow interpret with regards to myself. Every street sign has a meaning. The way that these these chairs are arranged have some kind of meaning towards me, always towards me, towards this illusion of an ego, because they can't quite let it go. That's psychosis. Psychosis is the inability to just let go of oneself. So let's see. Uh, so Alan Watts says something beautiful. He says, for the Tao does not know how it produces the universe, just as we do not know how we construct our brains. Right, so we don't actively and consciously beat our hearts or secrete the hormones from our different glands. Uh, so too, as the Tao is creating, it's, this is very different than the personified God that we're all raised with, which is God intentionally said, let there be this and there was this. This is more, let's say you're, you're striking two Flintstones together the spark just automatically happens. It doesn't have to think before it sparks. So too with the Tao. So too with creation. So too with the flow of this this whole universe. Like I always try to say, I don't think you can ever put it into words in one way or the other. I think both are correct. Both models of God as as king and monarch, which we always need to you know, relate to as humans. And then also this idea of the Tao, which is so incomprehensible so here's the quote from chuang tzu 
that's connected to this. He says, things are produced around us, but no one knows the whence, meaning nobody knows from where. They issue forth, but no one sees the portal. Men, one and all, value that part of knowledge which is known. They do not know how to avail themselves of the unknown in order to reach knowledge. Is not this misguided? Right, so this reminds me exactly of like, in any given moment, it's yesh me'ayin. So I, there's, a, there's a, you know, in, in very deep meditations that I've done, I've had times where every time I would breathe in, it would be like the Big Bang exploding into at all moments until this one right, right now. That's every breath in. And every breath out is the big crunch from this moment till the end of this universe outwards till it fully collapses back on itself. So, and it's almost like everything in space and time is coming up into now and then dissolving from now and then coming up into now and dissolving from now. And that's really kind of where we live in every given moment. It's the Big Bang till now, till the next big crunch, if it is such a thing. And this yesh me'ayin that we're experiencing in this moment is from the nothingness to the somethingness. But where is that portal? No one's ever found it. Which is funny because no one has found it. The nothing and the no one found it. Right? If you are the, the me or the ma, as Zohar says, right? The me is, is uh, bina and ma is shekhinah. Then you'll find it. But you have to be no one in order to find it. And what does that mean? Well, I don't know. <laughs> right? So... Here's a quote from uh, from the Tao Te Ching. Uh, this is something we we quote all the time, but I think it's very necessary uh, in this context. The great Tao flows everywhere, to the left and to the right. All things depend upon it to exist, and it does not abandon them. To its accomplishments, it lays no claim. It loves and nourishes all things, but does not lord it over them. So this is to give you a flavor of a different model, a model that doesn't require you to constantly be playing, as I call it, ego and humility games with God in which you're constantly either trying to impress God in a certain way or tell God that you're not worthy and show him how humble you are, which is really ego. And or when bad things are happening, say, really, God, I deserve better. These are the, the, the games we play inevitably when we personify God. Or when we project our ego outwards, which, to be honest, we can't help but do that sometimes because we are human. But once we are ready to give that up, we can play the Tao game a little bit, which is I, I don't mean to say oh the Tao game as though it's like a, a of lesser importance. I mean everything is part of this game, and the Tao is also part of the game of the personified God and the non-personified God. It kind of envelops all of it, right? so thirsty sorry <laughs> but last year i read uh what's called the diamond sutra which is known in, in uh sanskrit as prajna paramita which is the diamond that cuts through illusion they have a way of talking about reality as though if you conceive of reality as he's going to set forth it's like a diamond that cuts through all, all of the illusions of the world 
to this reality as it is. So listen to this quote. And this is something to help guide you towards seeing the world with that level of clarity. He says, all bodhisattva heroes should cultivate their minds to think. All sentient beings of whatever class are caused by me to attain the boundless liberation of nirvana. Yet when vast, innumerable, immeasurable numbers of beings have thus been liberated, in truth, no being has been liberated. Why is this, Subhuti? That's the name of a student. It is because no bodhisattva holds to the idea of an ego, a personality, a being, or a separate individual. So what he's saying is, you, as a bodhisattva, which is a person who had some kind of mystical experience and came back, chose, quote-unquote, to come back into this reality and continue your work. When you do that, eventually, you will get to the point, after however many lifetimes or however many eons it takes, but you'll feel as though you finally enlightened yourself alongside many, many other beings. And once you do that, you might think to yourself, hey, hey, wow, I liberated everyone and everything. But the joke is, almost the hilariousness of it is, there were no other beings in the first place. We were all one the whole time. So don't get lost in the idea of you being a separate being having a separate lifetime, or being a separate individual. Because in reality, it's all one. Because there is no me without you. And the question of where does your boundary end and my boundary begin is totally arbitrary. And I couldn't be exactly as I am without you being exactly as you are. And alongside every other factor since the Big Bang until now. And it's that realization that allows the ego to let go of itself. And it's, you have simultaneously, as I've tried to describe it in my own experience, where it's like, on the one hand, you feel as though you were the first one to ever discover this. But at the same time, you feel that every single being in all of reality ever has been waiting for you to finally realize this thing. And it's both at the same time, that you were the first and you were the last. And it's some kind of unbelievable mystical experience. Um, and then he says also, just so Subhuti, I obtained not the least thing from unexcelled complete awakening. So he's saying, I didn't, I didn't obtain anything from this unexcelled complete awakening. And for this very reason, it is called unexcelled complete awakening. It wouldn't be this total unbelievable complete awakening unless it entailed nothing. <laughs> That's the point. The point is that there is no point. The point is that there is no goal, that it's purposeless. And we are so trained to constantly have a purpose and to constantly find a meaning and to constantly insist on some kind of particular future. But if we're able to let go of that for a second, we can see that life is a lot more musical than that. And a lot more like a dance than that, where a musical thing is not trying to get to the end of the piece. It's for its own enjoyment. It's lishma, if you will, right? One-pointedness is the next idea I'd like to discuss. If anybody, of course, has any questions or comments, feel free, Fadalu, to ask. Um, so one-pointedness has, ironically, a dual meaning. It's like the Louis C.K. bit where he says, 
everyone says everything is a, two, a double-edged sword. He's like, well, even a, a single-edged sword is a double-edged sword. Because on the one hand, it's got one edge, but on the other hand, it only has, you know, it's got a flat edge as well. <laughs> it's just So you could say, you know, everything is X, but this idea of one-pointedness has two elements to it. I don't know why that popped into my head. But number one, focused on the present. And number two, without differentiating the knower, the knowing, or the known. As Hanabam would say, or as my rabbi would say, God is the dreamer, God is the dream, and God is that which is being dreamt. And you're all of the above. But right now, you are really the dream in the mind of God. You are the dream content of God. All right, so here they say a Tathagata or a Buddha, right? Tatata means suchness or that which is. So a Tathagata is someone who is in touch with that which is, and it's also known as a Buddha, one who woke up, is a seer of what is to be seen, but he is not mindful, meaning he does not conceive of the seen, the unseen, the seeable, or the seer. So too with the heard, the sensed, and the known, he does not think of them in these categories. Right, so a Buddha is not separating between seer and seen. It's just the seeing. He doesn't separate between hearing and the heard. It's just the hearing. So even now, as I speak, I can just hear the voice. Where is this voice coming from? Well, it's coming from me. Where is me? What is me? Is is that separate from the voice? Well, it all seems one to me, right? That's the experience. Um, so here's another way of, of putting it. Like the empty sky, it has no boundaries, yet it is right in its place, ever profound and clear. When you seek to know it, you cannot see it. You cannot take hold of it, but you cannot lose it. And not being able to get it, you get it. When you are silent, it speaks. When you speak, it's silent. The great gate is wide open to bestow alms. And no crowd is blocking the way. It's always here. But when you look for it, you can't find it. But you can't escape from it. So what is it? And you don't have to do anything to get there, right? It's it's a pretty mysterious thing going on. But And at the same time, they say somebody who is trying to achieve egolessness is like a naked man trying to take off his own shirt. It's already off. There is no ego to begin with. So what are you trying to get rid of? So this is why I think it's like spiritual psychotherapy, because all the neuroticism that comes about on this path of I'm not good enough and I should be better and I could be better and I would be better and all that stuff, that goes away very quickly once you realize it's the work is already done. But that's a very radical idea because it's like, well, well. Well, well, if we tell this to people, what are they going to do? They're just going to go and wreak havoc. Well, that's why this is such a secret, quote unquote. Right? That's why we we we're going to see in the Zohar some some pretty crazy stuff that they say about Samael and the the devilishness that that happens when when people take this the wrong way. But at the same time, I think the majority of the evil that's done comes from not fully realizing this truth i would say probably all the evil that's done
comes from not being in touch with this truth. But that's just semantics, of course. So let's do a little bit more of this that we'll do some Zohar. So this guy, Huang Po, um, so I wrote here next to it, collapsing the wave function with the brain itself made of particles. That's what I wrote here. So basically, very interesting idea, which is in, in quantum physics, as you probably know, if you look at the subatomic level, reality acts as particles when being observed. You can look into the double slit experiment. I could post a video later on if you guys want. A five-minute video, it's pretty incredible. When you observe reality, it acts like particles. When you don't observe reality, it acts like waves. Isn't that crazy? What's the difference? Well, waves are like potentials. They don't, they're not actually there the same way that particles are. And the pattern on the wall is totally different when you're observing it as it's being shot through the double slit versus not. Meaning what? Meaning that the difference in the way reality behaves depends on whether or not there's someone observing it. Now, the question is, that's crazy because the thing that's observing it is itself made of particles, right? So if I'm observing the electron being shot through the double slit, what's happening? Well, my brain is observing through my eyes, but my brain and my eyes are themselves made of particles. And if you were to either look in my brain or not, it would determine if my brain would act as particles or as waves at each you know, subatomic level. So this is something that science cannot really explain. I don't want to get into God of the gaps here, which is, oh, God must be where science cannot explain. I just want to show you that there's this deep embedded mystery within quantum physics itself. And for some reason, I thought this is connected to what Huang Po is saying here. So let's see what he says. If it is held that there is something to be realized or attained apart from mind, and thereupon mind is used to seek it, Right, So if you're using mind to attain something beyond mind, that implies failure to understand that mind and the object of its search are one. So you're using the tip of this finger to try to feel the tip of this finger. Or you're using the camera lens to take a picture of the camera lens itself. Or you're trying to bite your own teeth. These are things that cannot be done. Because when you try to use the mind to overcome the mind, it's just more mind. Same thing with ego. Mind cannot be used to seek something from mind, for even after the passage of millions of kalpas, the day of success would never come. It's only once the mind does what? Sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. So they also compare it to stormy waters or muddy waters. If you just allow those waters to settle, all the mud will settle to the bottom of itself but the more you stir it the more you try to make the mud settle to the bottom, the more you stir it up but the more you just sit and let things be the more things fall into place it's very hard to train ourselves this way because we've been trained otherwise for so many years the blue mountains are of themselves blue mountains the white clouds are of themselves white clouds all you got to do is look at them, and they're just that way. They don't need to try to be that way. And same thing with us. Even though we think we try and then succeed, it's actually just flowing. 
everything is just the flow of the Tao. The same way that water, uh, or the you know they say in my that water is just flowing and the water is always seeking the lowest point. It's just flowing in the path of least resistance. So too, in one sense, with all the elements of reality. We can get philosophical about free will if you want, which I don't think we would be productive, but that too is some kind of ineffable thing. Because you are that will. You might think, oh, then I have no free will. If you mean that from an ego perspective, then you're correct. You do not have free will. But if you mean that from a perspective of universal consciousness, you are the will of the whole universe. You just haven't realized it yet. It's like a wave realizing it is the ocean. That's the experience. And that's why they call the Zen student is known as cloud water because they drift like a cloud and they flow like water. Right. So that's what it's trying to teach you. Instead of being rigid, instead of bumping up against life constantly because you insist moving forward that things be a certain way. Instead, you flow with things as they come. And when you think you failed and said, oh, I've been too rigid. No, that too was part of the Tao. You can't fail. It's impossible to fail. And then when you think you you're, you succeeded and then you say, oh, that was ego. And then the, it just keeps going. But just flow with it and let it flow. And don't judge too much. Right? I think there's there's a lot of virtue in, in realizing this stuff. Um, all right. So Uncle Richie's asking, how is one saying that they have their ego by saying, I am not worthy? Um, that is the ultimate humbleness, isn't it? So if somebody is aware that they have no ego, then that's ego, mm -hmm. right? So that's the thing, you know, it's like trying to be humble. You can't try to be humble, right? We said last time, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Moshe Rabbeinu coming down from the mountain, his face was glowing. He had no idea. And the people had to tell him, yo, Moses, your face is glowing. You had to put on the mask. Well, I looked earlier in the pasuk, like, all right, what's the reason he didn't notice? Well, he was so focused. He was so focused on the tablets that that's all he was about. He couldn't care less about his status or his glowing countenance. That wasn't what it was about. Uh, the work is never done. There is always room for improvement. This is why we meditate. Exactly, Uncle Richie. That is true. And yet at the same time, even though there's always room for improvement, at the same time, nothing needs to be improved. It's both at the same time. That this, somehow this moment is perfect, but just realizing that you don't have to improve anything. Exactly, exactly, and and it's almost and the improvement will come. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That's the point. He got it exactly right. Your your grandson, your new grandson. <laughs> <laughs> it's an incredible thing because, on the one hand, there's work to do, and on the other hand. Everything is done. But it's like either if if I were to state it either way, it would be false. I have to do this double speak. Paradox. It's a paradox. That's when you get to the deepest levels of reality, it's always paradoxical. So now we could do some Zohar. Um, and I'll read it aloud. So no worries if you're I'll tell you exactly where we're at. Um, so we left off last time with some beautiful ideas about when a person um, so if you guys see, it says, um, to, to say to Tzion, you are Ami, my people, to say to those gates, those distinguished words, these above those, you are Ami. Do not read it Ami, but read Ami with me. You see that? Let's see, maybe I can find it for you. 
Um, so when we read this stuff, we saw last time we were talking about spiritual competition that Moshe Rabbeinu had with the angels. And we were saying that this is the, the game that the ego plays sometimes when we're getting into a mystical experience and we feel like other people are going to question, are we worthy or we do we feel worthy? And all these different questions come about. But at the end of the day, what saved Moshe Rabbeinu was Hashem said, just grasp onto my kisa kavod and answer them. And then you can answer these angels. And that's relying on something greater than oneself will guide oneself towards that experience. I think that's really what I've come to regarding that. That if you rely on your ego to fight off these you know, competitive angels, you're never going to be able to do anything. But once you dissolve yourself by relying on the fact of there is so much beyond myself, then you will, will really be able to uh, really get into that experience. Okay. So let's see now. Uh, so it's saying we're so lucky to be able to engage in Torah because you are you're not just on me, you're also in me, you're with me. Hashem says, you're my partner. Just as Hashem made heaven and earth by speaking, so too we are creative when we learn Torah. So let's see now uh, what this is saying. Now, if you say that the word of any ignorant person has the same effect. So last time we said speaking Divrei Torah and making Hidushim is one of the most beautiful things. And it goes up to these different levels of heaven that you can't even conceive of. But now it's saying something very different. If an ignorant person says something, right? He says, one who is unaccustomed to the mysteries of Torah and innovates words he does not fully understand. When that word ascends, a man of perversity, tongue of falsehood, bursts forth from the chasm of the immense abyss. Leaping 500 parsings to obtain that word, right? So some terrible thing is going to happen now. And uh, it's like the the Malach, Samael, right? One of these evil angels is grabbing her. He takes that word back to his chasm and transmogrifies um, her into a distorted heaven called chaos. The man of perversity flies through that heaven, 6,000 parsings in one glide. And the Midrash says, um, right, so Samael is empowered uh, on this celestial highway to go and leap however much. And it's going to say in a single moment, because uh, it was taught in Masechet Berachot, Michael reaches his destination in one glide, Gabriel in two glides, Eliyahu in four glides, and the Malach HaMavet in eight glides, but in a time of plague, however, in one. Right, so Malach HaMavet could reach his destination in only one glide, Hey, ID, Baruch Abba, perfect timing for the uh, for the Zohar. Um, so, so we're talking about people who are too audacious in making Hidushim, but this is specifically really regarding Divrei Halakha. So I think we're a little bit in the clear here, because I'm not really teaching any Halakha stuff. But um, if you want, you can send me an angry email later and tell me we shouldn't learn this stuff. Um, but basically, uh, this man of perversity who is this angel Samael, some kind of fallen angel, um, is able to really wreak havoc. As soon as the distorted heaven is established, the woman of whoredom emerges, right? So this is Lilith. Lilith is uh, said to be one of the uh, original wives of Adam Arishon before he met Hava, some kind of seductress woman. Um, 
emerges clinging to it, joining with it, right? So she she also is involved in um, some kind of terrible things that are going on when you learn Torah in the wrong way or when you speak Torah in the wrong way. From there, she sets out killing thousands of Marys for as long as she endures in that heaven. She's empowered to swoop through the entire world in a single moment. Concerning this is written, Woe unto them who's, who haul iniquity with cords of falsehood and sin with a cart rope. Right, so it says avon and hata'a. So avon is iniquity; it's the male. Who is sin? The female. Right, hata'a is nekeva. Right, in in Hebrew, it's the female. So he, the sinner, hauls the one called iniquity with those cords of falsehood, and then sin as as with a cart rope. The, that female called sin, who is empowered, there to find kill human beings. So many are those she has struck dead. Who has struck them dead? The sin who slays human beings. Well, who causes this? Is a disciple unqualified to teach? Who teaches? May Hakadosh Baruch Hu save us. All right. So I, I tried to go quickly through that interesting idea. Basically, it's saying um, the that before we were being very open with and encouraging with the idea of learning Torah and making Hidushim. This is tempering all of that and saying, don't be too audacious when you do teach Torah. Or when you are going to be trying to make Hidushim. And Rabbi Shimon said this companions, I beg of you not to utter a word of Torah that you do not know and have not heard properly from a lofty tree, lest you enable sin to slay multitudes without cause. Right? So really only learn these things if you have a teacher. Uh, if, if you have a teacher to teach you Divrei Halakha, really, according to this commentary. Now, we have an interesting story, or really an interesting dialogue. They all open saying, may the compassionate one save us, may the compassionate one, compassionate one save us, come and see, as opposed to the Gemara, it says, the Zohar always says, come and see. With Torah, the blessed Holy One created the world, right? So this is the famous Midrash, Hashem looked in the blueprint of the Torah in order to create the world. So it's flipping the idea from what we would normally think, which is, oh, the Torah was created based on the world. No, no, no. This is saying the world's created based on Torah. And it's trying to almost flip it temporally and and I think also purposefully, where it's like we said last time, these are the generations of heaven and earth. Don't read in their creation, that all of this stuff was created for the sake of Abraham. So it's like, at the very center of reality are these values. And is this important goal that it, it's almost as though until reality can conceive of itself in this way, meaning the relationship of Abraham to Hashem, only once creation was able to rise up and meet with God in this way, only then could it really be said that the world was created. That's how incredible. It's like Enta Omri. She says, in the, uh, you know, Um Kaltum says, when they count the years of my life, they shouldn't start counting until the year that I met you. It's kind of like that. Because what were all those years worth until there was a conscious human being to love and praise the name of God? Until reality itself could become self-conscious to the degree which Abraham did it. So Hashem created the world with, with uh, looking at the Torah this has been established as is written. I was with him as an earthling. I was a daily delight. Um, right? So it's quoting a pasuk from, uh, from where is this? Let's see, from from uh, Mishle. And it's saying, according to Masih Torah is a precious instrument by which the world is created. 
So I was with him as Amon, a nursling, but don't read it as Amon, Ella Uman, as an artisan. The Torah says, I was the artistic tool of the Blessed Holy One. The Blessed Holy One gazed into the Torah and created the world. So let's see what this means. He gazed upon her once, twice, three and four times, then spoke creating through her. Right? So Hashem is creating the world, the world through the spoken words of Torah. It's almost as though Hashem's words crystallized into reality. That's why the word davar means both a thing and a word. All right. So, and the importance of this is from my, you know, from you know, our personified reality, is we only can separate reality with our brain and our mind at a certain age, and around that age is when we start to be verbal. So we create the world as partners with God when we start to label reality as being X, Y, and Z. Right, it didn't really exist as such until you emerged to do that. At least for you, this is true, because you can't really know about other people's experiences. So to teach human beings not to err in her in the Torah, as is written, then he saw and declared her, arranged her, and probed her. He told humanity, uh, and uh, they're quoting Yov now, uh, the blessed Holy One created what He created, corresponding to those four four times He saw and declared her, arranged her, and probed her. Right, so he uses four different. Verbs in this pasuk from Iyov, and each one of them um, is a reference to four different worlds, containing respectively the sefirot, the merkava, the chariot, the angels, and the physical world. Right, so it's going to get a little bit more clear in a minute. Um, now we have an interesting story coming up. Uh, let's see. Before generating his work, he introduced four words. Now this is interesting. Right, Bereshit bara Elohim et. That's four words. In the beginning, God created. Right. So first, these four, then Hashamaim, the heavens. These correspond to the four times that Hagadosh Baruch Hu contemplated Torah before actualizing His work of art. So the same way we all learn Torah four or five times before giving it over. They say even about Moshe Rabbeinu that he would learn it four or five times before giving it over. So too, it's as though. Hashem had to do the same thing, and that's hinted in Bereshit, bara Elohim et, four words, before we hear the first word of creation, Hashemaim, ve'aretz, you know. Um, so, and it's also corresponding to the four verbs from that pasuk in Iyov. Now let's see what interesting story we have. Rabbi Al-Azhar was going to see the Yoseh, uh, Ben Rabbi Shimon, uh, Ben uh, Lekonya, his father-in-law, uh, Rabbi Abba accompanied him, and a man was goading the donkeys behind them. All right, so you have Rabbi Al-Azhar, the son of uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who was going with Rabbi Yoseh, and uh, the son of Rabbi Shimon, and his father-in-law. Rabbi Abba said, Let us open openings of Torah, for the time is ripe to adorn ourselves on our way. There's always interesting conversations between rabbis when they're on a journey. Rabbi al-Azhar opened saying, right? So, Patah Rabbi al-Azhar, my Sabbaths you are to, to observe. Ed Shabbat Otay Tishmoru, come and see. Right, it says, Tahazeh. Let's be Doresh, this Pasuk of Ed Shabbat Otay Tishmoru. In six days, HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world. Every single day revealed its work, transmitting its power through that day. So, the six days of creation correspond to the six primordial days of the Sefirot, right? So, each one of the first six days corresponds to Hesed, Gevurah, through Yesod, being the sixth day. And each day displayed its own creative power based on its Sefirah. So we're going to see how the Zohar explains 
creation uniquely in this way. Um, when did it reveal its work and transmit its power on the fourth day? Really, when the first time we saw reality on in creation was not until the fourth day. Why is that? What do we know was created on the fourth day? The sun, right? The first day is on Oran Hoshech, which is like, well, how could that be if there was no sun? Well, we know the Hachamim always say it's Or HaGanuz LaSadikim, the light that's hidden for the righteous in the end of days, um, where you could see from one end of the earth till the other, meaning space is no longer a concrete thing anymore for the righteous who have attained this level of clarity. They can see beyond space, you know, in a sense. Second day is separation of water. That's also like really so odd is like energy really the separation of waters is like the creation of space and then the third day is uh the creation of dry land and then and, and also vegetation and then finally the creation of the sun and it's also it doesn't make sense how could there be vegetation before there was the sun and the torah definitely knew i mean obviously it knew this everyone knows you can't have vegetation without the sunlight so why would the torah say that hashem didn't create the world the the sun yet. So let's see what the Zohar says. This is a very famous question about Bereshit, right? How could you have vegetation on the third day and then the sun on the fourth day? So on the fourth day, for those first three days were all concealed, not revealed. When the fourth day arrived, it generated the work and power of them all. Since fire, water, and air, although they are three ethereal elements, were all suspended, their work unrevealed until earth revealed them. Then the skill of each one of them was made known. So this is very similar to the thing we said about Abraham Avinu. So it's saying earth, water, and air could not have been revealed until fire of the sun emerged on the scene. All right, so I think that's, sorry, fire, water, and air could not have been, uh, you know, uh, revealed until the sun was there. So in terms of sequential time, it's not actual days, and it's a much deeper idea. But here also they say the Shekhinah is is what the fourth day is also referring to, uh, because usually the Shekhinah is referred to as the seventh of the Sifirot, but it could also be considered the fourth, because it it is kind of rounding out Chesed, Givurah, and Tiferet, and then you have Shekhinah. Um, and we'll see why this matters. So, obviously you have the four basic elements, water, earth, fire, air. These are the ultimate root of all things. By their combination, separation, everything in nature comes into being and passes away. This is from that famous Greek guy, Empedocles. Um, so now why why do we care? You know, why do we care about any of this stuff? Well, in a sense, you could say reality is not complete until there is the light to be shown upon it. Right. So you could say those first three days of creation, it's it, how could you even talk about them as being lit up until the sun was there? That's kind of how I conceive of it. The same way we talk about Abraham Avinu, until Abraham emerged on the scene to be the one who is conscious of reality, you can't talk about a reality because there is no one to speak about it. Um, so you, we, I always say like this, because it's a pretty complicated idea, but you, you could simplify it like this. Is the world in your brain or is your brain in the world? It's both. Of course it's both. It has to be both. But that's a crazy thing. We're saying the entire world, everything and anything that you can conceive of, is really contained inside this noggin of yours. 
And where is that noggin of yours? Oh, it's in that brain that it conceives of. That's crazy. Mikey, the only one that the whole world that's in that brain is you. <laughs> yeah, I love you. I, I really, you know, my head explodes sometimes. So I guess that's what. I'm <laughs> yeah, because I'm like about I got like half the universe, but you got the whole circle. You got the whole universe. I'm glad there's so much <laughs> of the universe. I wish I didn't have to have in this brain, but uh, they're in there anyway. But I love your ID. But it rounds you out. It rounds you out. That's right. I hope so. <laughs> like, I hope like, so. like the globe. Like the globe. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly but yeah this is the idea i think that that there's like nested layers of reality and when you have right. these three days coming into fruition on that fourth day we're going to see what it means here continuing right when the fourth right, but mikey isn't the zohar like open spaces like it's a it's an open shot in other words because it's hbgb anything goes in, in a way yes but i think if we try to see what was the intention of these midashim, what what really right. are they trying to get at? So yeah, right. you're right. You could be pretty creative with this stuff, but at the same time, I would say there probably is a closer reading that we could do as opposed to something more creative, which I think both are right. welcome. But let's see exactly. All right. So although there uh, there the three ethereal elements were all suspended, their work unrevealed until Earth revealed them. Then the skill of each one of them was made known. All right, so now, now you might say this happened on the third day concerning which is written, let the earth sprout vegetation, right? This is a question we ask. You might think, right, so this is about Maaseh Bereshit. How could you say that the third day was, was vegetation if the fourth day was the sun? Uh, but although written on the, of the third day, it was really the fourth, included in the third to be one without division, right? So it's saying really... When was the was this vegetation created? It was actually in the fourth day. But the Torah talks about it in the third day because the third primordial day, its sefirah is tif'eret, the male sefirah. And the activity of the female, the shekhinah, symbolized by earth, took place on the fourth day, but is included in his day to ensure and demonstrate their union. Right. So tif'eret, the male, is the third day. Shekhinah, the female, is the fourth day. And until they got together, until they had their sexual union, if you will, the reality wasn't created. So they really, it was, it was at the same time that that happened. But we talk about the male as though it was prior, right? So male and female are constantly, you know, in reality, right? We talk about yin and yang, positive and negative poles of, of reality as it constantly is all around us, like a, like a soup of reality. This reality is constantly this balance of the male and the female. But we precede in time the male to the female. We say the male injected into the female this creative energy and then emerged that reality. But that doesn't really give credence to what's going on. Really, in reality, it's right here, right now. It's this here. But when we want to look back at how it came to be, we say, oh, it was this and then that. But really, it's just right here, right now. Always that way. We tr we create time by saying the male came first and then the female. Right? We create that temporal sequence of causal events by saying the male injected creative potential into the female and then emerged X. 
But really, it's just like that. Always. I know it sounds a little bit crazy, but we'll see what, what the funny story coming up. Um, from the fourth day on, its work was revealed, yielding an artisan for each and every skill. For the fourth day constitutes the fourth leg of the celestial throne. All right, so Shekhinah rounds out the four sefirot that are considered the four legs of the divine throne. Chesed, Gevurat, Edit, and then finally Shekhinah. Um, and then uh, the last three days of creation are Netzahod and Yesod. And Shekhinah also is their fourth. So the first three and the last three, that makes sense. Sorry, six. What's the middle one? Shekhinah. So Shekhinah is doing double duty as the fourth day and as the Shabbat, the seventh day. So it's the one, it's rounding out the first three days by being the fourth day. And Shekhinah is also rounding out the last three days by being Shabbat. And it's what I'm trying to explain is these nested layers of reality, this idea of fractals is very, very commonplace within mystical ideas and mystical visions where all of this reality, right? This whole world could be within the fingernail of some guy down the street, but he's in this world, but the world is also in his fingernail, right? It's, it's a nested layer of reality. That's the way you could think of all this. So that's I know I sound like a raging psychopath, uh, but Mikey, on the yes. on the Zohar, on these points that you that you do they do they lead into each other or they all stand alone their own value? That's a great words, question. It, I think I think they really do. They're trying to construct um, a worldview, but also a specific um, idea here. So now this is all tr- to be to weave it all together. It's trying to explain creation in terms of these different elements of God. But it's saying the Shekhinah acts as the end of part one and the end of part two of creation. Mm-hmm. But but let's see, let's see a little bit more just so it becomes clear. All the work of them, uh, both earlier and later days, was dependent on the Sabbath day. Everything really came to, to, to a head on Shabbat. Shekhinah completes the triad of Haisat Givonat Tveret, as well as the next triad, Nezahod and Yesod. She is the Shabbat, culmination of the primordial week of creation. And then we, of course, know the Pasuk says, Right, so Hashem concluded his creation. Let's see what Midrash they say. They say, don't read it as Vaychal, uh, as God completed, but rather God included. Um, right, because that instead of the word Kala, which means to end, you could read Kalal, which means everything is included, called Bichlal, right? In the seventh day, his work that he made, that this is Shabbat, the fourth leg of the throne. Right, so Erwin, you, what was your question exactly? You're, you want to know, is the Zod trying to construct a random facts, or is it trying to, to weave together a, a narrative about creation? Exactly. So I'm saying, does the East Standalone point have its its own value, or does it is it weave... To to like be a compendium of the story, uh-huh. like you go to A to Z, you know, you know yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I think it could be in both. Other, in other words, if you cherry pick, like I read Zohar once a day, like, yeah, and and when I read it, whatever. So I'm reading it, and I read it in English, and I read it in Hebrew. But the point is that I cherry pick it. Like I'll go to the middle, I'll go to the end, and I look at it at each 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 portion or each level or each whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, raise up is is a value to me, but does it have to be read 
in a, in a, in a sequence or could it be cherry-picked? Wrong. I think what you're doing is beautiful and I think it has value. I think right. there's different layers that you could read it on. You could probably take factoids and appreciate each one as right. a gateway towards God. I don't I think that's 100% true, but right, I think right. that also gain another perspective if you put it in its context. But I think both right. are very valuable for sure. But that's a that's is, a it, is, is this quote is this the, the quote that you just said isn't that so? This is the Sabbath song on Friday night. No, exactly. So this is what he's saying kiddush. So we say this is from Shira Shirim. No, so not Shira Shirim, but from from the Torah uh, itself. From, from the right, from no, oh, so this is the warm up to Shira or exactly, to Shira. Yeah, exactly. right, 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 so right. On Friday right. night because right. it's. And it's saying basically what we're saying is you don't have to read it as God completed his work on the seventh day, but instead read it right. as God included in his works. This is what we were building up to this whole time. Included in the Shabbat day is every single day of creation. Right. So that's an amazing thing. That's saying. Right. It's the equivalent of saying in this moment is embedded every moment of all reality nested in this right. moment because if i am so fully present in this moment i can see every moment from the big bang up until now and i can see every moment from right now till the big crunch until back to this moment the same thing with shabbat shabbat is encapsulating within it every single day of primordial creation and it's also the the fourth day does that for the first three days and shabbat does it for the, the last three days, and for all seven days. So it's like layers of nested reality, all contained within Shabbat. So even on a personal level, you you on your Shabbat, you can look back on all the days of the week that led up to this day of rest. And that this day of rest was not possible without every success and every failure and every happy moment, every sad moment during that creative week that you had. But the amazing thing is what? That Shabbat, I think, is not just talking about the day of rest here on this earth. We always say, you know, we say in Birkat Amazon, right? Hashem, please give us that time which is totally Shabbat. And we talk about the idea of Olam Haba as that. That really, Shabbat in this world is just one little taste, it's one sixtieth of what Olam Haba is. This feeling of having arrived that we have on Shabbat, that feeling of contentment, and she says, do all your work, it should be in your eyes as though all your work is done. You're so content on Shabbat, it's like a palace in time, right? Just like you have a palace in space, you have a palace in time, Kedushat Hazman, holiness of time you can consider it as though this moment of shabbat everything is totally done there's nothing to do and that's everything we were talking about the first half of the class is it not is that not exactly the point of zen there's nothing to do you take that to its nth degree and you get olam haba so shabbat is like a portal into this idea. And the way that this is saying through the Sefirot is that's what, that's what the Shekhinah really is. Shekhinah is 
this divine presence. It's this female element of reality, right? Why the female element of reality? It's the thing that catches everything. It's the thing that's compassionate towards everything, saying, I will bring you into reality just as you are. Just settle here in me. That's what the Shekhinah basically is saying. I know we, we only have like one more minute left. Um, so we'll end with this. Um, now you might ask, if so, why et Shabbatotai Tishmoru? Why is it multiple Shabbats? Why why is it Shabbatotai, which means my Sabbaths, plural? The answer is the Shabbat of Shabbat Eve and the Shabbat of the Shabbat day itself, which are indivisible. So Shabbat at night and Shabbat in the daytime. That's why it says my Sabbaths shall you observe. There are two aspects of Shabbat, the feminine Shabbat Eve, symbolized by Shekhinah, and the masculine Shabbat day, symbolized by Tiferet or Yesod. Now, why is this so interesting? Because it just reversed everything. We were saying that normally, what happens? Normally, the male precedes the female. Normally, it's Tiferet or Yesod, and then the Shekhinah. Right? That's usually how reality feels when you're talking about time. Time feels like the male element and then the female element. The male injects his creative power into the female. Shabbat, it totally reverses. Shabbat evening, Friday night, is what? Is the Shekhinah, is the female. It's preceding what? Shabbat day, Saturday, is the male element. Is and, and I think there's a little hint in this. Because it's saying Shabbat is not like time during the week. Time during the week was male into female. First three days into Shekhinah. Last three days into Shekhinah. But once you're in the Shekhinah, you see now the male and the female are in a reversible order because they're concurrent. Right? And as they would say uh, um, in the Eastern tradition, Gigi Muge, right? That it's they're co-arising. This arises and that arise, arises i love right id loves the japanese stuff <laughs> so I love it, I love it, yeah. it means that it's th these things are mutually arising and the male and female ah the whole week i thought it was male and then female i thought it was i thought it was uh, a led to b led to c really now i realize that it wasn't a temporal reality i have right. now transcended time and i see in reality that it's not about time in a sequence, but rather reality is more like a web of life. Wow. Everything exists as a web of life, and that's Gigi Muge. And that's why we had to get to this point where we see Shabbat wow. is, is where the reversal of cause and effect happens. And the Shekhinah, the female uh, and the feminine, precedes the masculine. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen. Dynamite, Mikey. Dynamite. Thank you so much for joining. It was great. Great was night. Fun. Have a great, great week. Stuff. Always ask me any questions you have. Feel free to text me. I love you. Have a great week, Mike. Richard, I'm sorry I didn't answer all your questions. See you soon. Have a great holiday, guys. Richie, hi, Rich. Hazakubaru. Hazak, very much. I'll see you, Mikey. Send love, love to everybody. You. See you next week.